you have your Bible, open with me to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 this morning. Before we read and pray, let me, let me try to set this particular passage and, and even what follows in the rest of Exodus sort of in its, in its context. Uh, we had said a, a few times at least as we've been going through Exodus that you could, uh, in, a, in a simple, straightforward way, you could read Exodus in three parts. Uh, the first part would be Israel and Egypt, uh, then the second part, Israel in the wilderness, and then the third part would begin where we are this morning, starting at chapter 19, Israel at Sinai, uh, at Mount Sinai. And of course, for those of us who have been uh, in the church for a while, or those of us who maybe are a little bit more seasoned and remember Charlton Heston as Moses, right? He gets the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. It's sort of one of these big, pivotal, climactic events in, uh, in biblical history. Uh, but the significance of this is, uh, is displayed in a, in a couple of different ways. So I, I want to say just something very briefly before we read, and then we'll begin to work our way through it. Uh, one, it's interesting to note that, um, that whereas it takes Israel approximately three months from leaving Egypt to arrive at Sinai, you find out as you continue to read that they remain at Sinai for almost a full year, about 11 months. Uh, if you step away from the, you know, trying to, to work out a timeline, 11 months that they're camped at Sinai as the Lord reveals his word and his law and his instruction to them, uh, just in terms of the pages of your Bible, uh, Sinai and what happens at Sinai begins at Exodus 19 and runs all the way through Numbers chapter 10. All of the material in those pages are given over to God's revelation to his people at Sinai and a few, well, we'll say unfortunate events, acts of sin and rebellion that the Lord must deal with. But all that to say, in light of the duration of time that Israel spends at Sinai, in light of the amount of pages that are given to that time, it's clear that this is a momentous event for Israel. We tend to casually pass over this or dismiss it because we associate Sinai with the giving of the law. And, well, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. So, good riddance to the law. I think that is a terrible way for us to approach this portion of Scripture. Not because God is creating for himself a bunch of rule-bound, legalistic-minded people, but because in the way that God interacts with his people through the giving of the law, he is revealing more about himself. He is exposing us in the deepest reaches and corners of our hearts and making us more desirous of the work that he and only he can do to make us children that walk in pleasing obedience with him. So having said that, follow along with me. Exodus 19, 1 through 9. We're actually going to spend most of our time in verses 4 through 6. We'll come back this evening, by the way, if you're able to make it back to the evening service. We will spend some time talking about the significant role that Moses plays in verse 9. But listen as we read this passage. What this is communicating to us is that the Lord saves his people so that they may enjoy life with him. Listen to how this works its way out in this passage. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out, when they set out for Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, 
if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we ask that you would do what you love to do, which is to rouse lazy and lethargic children to energetic obedience. That you would give rest to those children who feel that the weight of obedience is too much for them to bear, that they would find their rest in Jesus Christ, who has already done this work of obedience for them and enables them to walk with freedom in your truth. We thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in giving us your word and ask that we would rightly understand what it is that you are revealing about yourself, your will, and your ways. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Three things here that we want to see in these verses. Number one, that God's law is an extension of God's redeeming grace. God's law is an extension of his redeeming grace. Number two, God's law grants a particular privilege to his children. And number three, God's people will always discover that his law requires more than they can give. You're saying, well, law, law, law. Where, where is this law? I didn't, I didn't see law showing up in the passage that you read. If you skip down to verse 5, when the Lord says, Now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. This is, this is preparatory for the Lord descending on Sinai and giving to Moses the law. Just by virtue of the fact, we don't have time to do it now, but just by virtue of the fact that the, what we typically refer to as the law, the Lord refers to here as covenant, in and of itself ought to shape the way that we think about the Lord's commands to his people. All that being said, this is a summons to get ready to meet the Lord so that the Lord will issue forth his covenant law to his people. In the flow of the story of Exodus, basically the way that we are to put these pieces together is to recognize that because the Lord has saved, has redeemed his people, set them free from their captivity and slavery in Egypt, and now offers them new life, it is by his grace and mercy, his love for them, that he does not just leave them to try to figure out life for themselves, but in his covenant law, he tells them, what life ought to look like for their good and for their blessing. Now, before we actually get into the text, let me do one other thing just to help hopefully orient our minds and settle our, our spirits here a little bit. There is a tendency, because by nature we tend to be people who swing like a pendulum from one extreme to the other. There is a tendency to approach the scriptures, particularly when the Lord is preparing to give commands or imperatives to his people, and we approach that or we deal with the commands of scripture in one of two ways. Either we diminish or we ignore the commands that God gives to us because we fall back on the glorious truth that we have already been saved and forgiven. 
We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is given as a free gift to us. But that sort of mentality that stops right there, that only puts the emphasis on God's redeeming, saving work, would be like writing Exodus and stopping at chapter 15. God brings his people out of Egypt. He judges their enemies. He breaks their chains, sets them out in new life, and then nothing. Well, good luck, guys. I've done my part. Now you figure the rest out. The other way, the other extreme, is to so emphasize the commands in isolation from the love and the grace of God that you begin to cultivate sort of this rule-bound, legalistic, harsh, critical kind of spirit. Usually that happens because you feel oddly proud of yourself that you obey in ways that other people do not, which is foolish. Or if you're not overly proud and contemptuous of other people, you're going to be thoroughly demoralized because you're going to see all the ways that you fail to live up to the laws and the commands that God has given, and you're just going to wallow in despair for the entirety of your Christian life. Neither one of those extremes are where we want to fall. But because there tends to be such an emphasis today on freedom, on grace, on encouraging people, not wanting them to feel awkward or uncomfortable, not putting any demands upon them, look with me, keep your place here in Exodus 19, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me just do this briefly, just to show you that we don't outgrow God's commands and the call to obedience. Chapter 1, verse 2. Peter says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Skip down to verses 14 and 16, or 14 through 16. Notice what Peter says there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you will be holy, for I am holy. And again in 122. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. This is all in the first opening chapter of Peter. Peter says that one of the distinguishing marks of God's children is that they obey his commands. If you flip one page over to 1 Peter chapter 2, Look at what Peter does with the passage that we just read in Exodus 19. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He quotes from our passage in Exodus 19. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of this to simply say that what we're seeing in Exodus 19, God saying to his people, I saved you out of that old life. I delivered you from that so that you could walk in a new life is exactly what he does for all of his children in Jesus Christ. He delivers us from our life of sin so that we can live a new life. But that new life that he gives to us by the power of his spirit is not a new life that we create out of whole cloth or that we establish for ourselves. That life that he gives to us is one that he describes, that he forms and he shapes by the gracious 
words that he's given to us in Scripture, and our response as grateful, humble children is to receive the Word of God and to obey in faith. Go back to Exodus 19. God is getting his people ready to receive his law covenant. Commands, instructions on how they are to live now that they are entering into a new life with him. The first thing that we want to notice in verse 3 as a way to lay the groundwork or to prepare the people for what's coming and by extension to prepare us as well. Verse 4 God is making it clear that his law that he is about to give in the next chapter or so is an extension of his redeeming grace. Notice what God says, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Notice that what grounds all that's about to happen, what will take place in the future, all of that is built on what God has already done for his people. And look at the way that he describes it. You yourselves have seen what I have done to the Egyptians. If we were to try to paraphrase that, we would say that's a reference to the fact that God judged and destroyed the enemies and the powers that held his children, his people, in chains. He says in verse 4, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Essentially, he's saying, I carried you out of this life that you could not set yourself free from. I lifted you up. I carried you, and I brought you to me, to myself. You can hear you can hear the implications and the desires that God is communicating in that statement that's, that he sets a people free so that they can enjoy the blessings and the privilege of fellowship with God. God intends not merely to give them freedom from their old life, God intends to give them himself. All of that all of that has already been done. And all of that that has been done has been done as sheer grace to God's people. He did everything for them and has now brought them to this point and this time in which they are about to meet with him and hear now about this life that he is going to give them as a further demonstration of his love and his grace. Once again, because in the next several pages we begin to get into things like the Ten Commandments, and we get into legal dictates about how we're to interact with our neighbors or other countries or rules and regulations for worship and the tabernacle and all that, we very easily lose sight of this setting, of this stage, that God is doing something good and great for his people, and we easily drift back into this sort of legalistic mindset. People don't do that, right? Listen, remember when the, when the Lord sent Moses to Pharaoh, one of the first things that Moses was to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let him go that he may worship me. God stands as a father to his people. And when as a father to his people, he gives commands and instructions he does that because of his fatherly love and affection for his children he does not give them the law to make their life miserable he gives them to the law to make their life fruitful and joyful and a delight and something that they can rest and find contentment in every parent 
knows this reality. You come home with your child from the hospital. At your expense, at the pain and suffering of the wife, of the mother, you bring this little package home. New life has entered into the world. Or you pay the legal fees for adoption and you jump through all the hoops. You bend over, over backwards to bring this child home so that new life can be created in this home. And what do you do with that new life? Do you set it in the corner and say, well, done my part. Junior will figure it out. Or, because you love your child, do you take the time to stoop down to his or her level and give them instruction about how life is to be lived? Do you warn them about the dangers of playing in the street or playing with electrical outlets or touching a hot stove? Do you do that because you intend to be a cosmic killjoy for your child? No. No. You do it because you love them and your commands, your instructions to them are meant to be for their good. For the thriving of life. And that is what God is doing with his people here. He has given them new life. He has created something out of nothing. They once were not a people, but now they are. And God in His grace does not merely just cast them off and let them try to wander around aimlessly, figuring out what they are going to do with this new life, but He says, now that you have this new life, here is how you are going to find maximal delight. Here is where peace will be found. Here is where contentment will be found. And he gives them his law. Just by way of application, Christian, be sure that you keep this order set in your mind. A Christian, a son or daughter of God, obeys because they have been saved. They do not obey in order to be saved. There is no amount of obedience, there is no amount of law-abiding that you or I could offer up to God that would cause Him to turn to us in a favorable way and say, well, I wasn't going to give this guy the time of day, but look at how well he's done with my commands. I guess I'll take him now. Our obedience is not trying to create something with God. Our obedience comes out of what God himself has already created for us. And because of that, our obedience to the law of God, to his commands, becomes a law of liberty for us. It becomes a way that we demonstrate our gratitude to him for what he's done and in a way that we live and demonstrate to everyone else that this is the life that I want to live because my eyes have been opened to see the beauty and the treasure of God himself. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to, you need to hear this point very carefully. Let me, let me say it again. God's children, God's people, do not obey in order to be saved. They obey because they have been saved. If you, do, if you have not been redeemed and forgiven, if you have not been delivered from sin, if you have not repented and put your trust in Christ, it does not matter how much or how hard you go about trying to kill yourselves to live a good, honest, and righteous life. No amount of obedience to mere law is going to change you into a child of God. My kids bring a friend home to hang out with the family or to eat supper with them. 
The rules that we have in the Merritt household now apply to the stranger who has been brought in. Sometimes the stranger actually obeys better than the kids. But at the end of the day, even if the strangers obey better than the children, they're still strangers to the family. But here's the hope and the encouragement that you have. There's nothing that you can do to work your way in to God's family. But if you know that you're missing it, if you know that you're missing out on the life that God gives to his people, it is yours for the asking. Number two. Not only is God's law an extension of God's redeeming grace, God's law grants particular privileges to his children. Look at verses 5 and 6. Remember verse 4 is what God has already done. He has already delivered them. He has already carried them and brought them to himself. He's done all of that. Verse 5, Now then, now that all of this has been done, now that you're here, now that I've brought you to myself, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the sons of Israel. just start with the first statement there if you will indeed obey my voice if you will keep my covenant you will be to me my own possession it's an it's an odd somewhat difficult statement because on the one hand the lord says to them as you walk in obedience to the instructions that i give you you will be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. In other words, all of the nations of the earth are God's possession. It all belongs to him. Whether they want to admit it and acknowledge God's sovereignty and his lordship, his rule and reign or not, it's all God's. But what's being said here is, but for you... And you alone, there will be a special way that I lay claim to you in a way that I do not lay claim to any other nation on the face of this earth. Remember, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes this passage to New Testament Christians. says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. He is quoting this. One of the unbelievable realities of fellowship with God is that God, by His grace and mercy, out of sheer kindness and love, deals with His children in a way that he does not deal with anyone else. God loves everyone, but he does not love them the same way. He loves his children in a special way. You will be something different and special to me if you continue to obey my voice and keep my covenant. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. In establishing this people for himself, God has given them or is giving them the privilege of being the ones, the only ones, who will represent God to all the other peoples of the earth. 
If they're going to find me, if they want to hear about me, if they want to know something about me, they have to come to you to get it. And I will make you a holy nation. I'm going to make you different. Not just because I set you apart and I count you differently as my people. I'm going to separate you from all the other nations. I'm going to separate you, make you distinct, because I'm going to use you and do with you things that I do not do with anyone else. All of this, Israel is going to realize as they walk in obedience and as they keep covenant. Now, here's the dilemma. Look at verse 5, the very first line. Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be these things. That's a, that's a big if, isn't it? There's a lot that rides on that if. If you obey and keep my covenant, then you will be a special possession for me. Then you will be my priests, my ministers to everyone else. Then you will be a holy nation. What if the if never materializes? Right? I'm, I'm not the only one who feels this tension, right? The if then? What if they don't? What happens? Hold your place here and go over a few, a several, I'm not sure, pages to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Okay, what, what you want to have sort of in one ear right now is what we just read in, in Exodus 19.5, that if you obey and keep my covenant, then you will be. If, then. That, that's ringing in one ear, but now what you want to ring in the other ear is what we're going to read here in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Exodus 19, if you obey, then you will be. But in Deuteronomy 7, he says flatly, you are a holy people. You are a special possession. Let me tell you what I think is, is going on here and the way that we, we wrestle with hopefully well, this tension. Because God is entering into a covenant relationship with his people, because it's built on his work and his promises, the security that God offers his people is fixed and permanent. There will not be anything to undo what God has created, what God has established. The question, however, is a matter of whether or not Israel, by her faith and obedience, will enjoy the security and the rewards that God is offering her as she continues to trust Him and obey Him. So, going back to the home analogy. If one of your children, or grandchildren, or a coworker, something like that, was constantly stealing from you, was muddying your good name, was doing physical harm to you, 
even though that child belonged to you, by virtue of their disobedience and their rebellion, they would not be able to enjoy the fatherly or maternal love and affection that would be theirs if they walked in humility and obedience to their parents. True? It is going to create tension in the family. It may even result in that child being put out of the house. Even if that child, though, is not able to fully enjoy the affection and the provision and all that the parents have in store for them, he always remains their child. I think that what God is indicating here is that Israel's ability to enjoy this new life is going to be conditioned on their obedience. In one sense, their confidence, their certainty that they belong to the Lord will be increased or enhanced as they walk in obedience to the Lord. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Let me show you a way that this plays itself out in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we do what? If we keep his commandments. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, verse 4, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then skip over to the end of 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13. He's coming to the end of the letter. He has said, the ones who obey the commands of God, those are children of God. Those who love their brother and their sister as Christ commanded, those are the children of God. And listen to what he says, 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. How will they know, how will we know that we are the Lord's special possession? How will we know that we are His ministers and servants? How will we know that He has set us apart and is doing something different with us? will obey his commandments. And this leads us to the third point then. On the one hand, obedience is essential. It is a necessary mark for God's people such that not walking in obedience with God calls into question whether or not you are, in fact, one of his children. Obedience is not optional. It's essential. However, and yet, but, unfortunately, whatever kind of connective word you want to use there, we will always discover, no matter how much we want to obey, we will always discover that God's law, that God's commands, that God's instruction requires of us more than what we can give. Always. You say, well, Merritt, that creates a major problem because you just said or not you, Merritt, the Apostle John said that we'll know that we have come to know Him, we'll have assurance of our salvation if we obey and keep His commandments. But you're now saying, turning on a dime and saying, but you'll never be able to do it. Well, thanks for that. 
What do, what do you do with that? What do you do, Edgewood? When you find that God's commands call you to give things that you don't have the capacity to give. That calls you to make sacrifices that you don't feel capable of making. Or even after the fact, when you look and you recognize that here is a clear command, here is clear instruction and direction from God, and I disobeyed, many times, knowingly disobeyed. What will you do? You better run to Jesus. You better not fall into the trap of thinking that if you work a little bit harder, that if your obedient quotient raises a few more points, then God will take you back and accept you and everything will be fine and good. It won't. Because you're going to disobey again. You're going to fail again. You will do that you will fail, you will disobey before you even leave this church. Because you'll have a sinful thought or impulse that courses through your heart. What are you going to do? Turn to Romans 8. The problem with spending all of my time focused on the sheer letter of the law, on the commands that God has given, is that inevitably I will find that I never measure up, that I'm never faithful enough, that I'm never obedient enough. Even at times when I do the right thing, I do it with the wrong motives, and therefore I wreck whatever act of obedience I just tried to commit. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through your flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that, listen, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not just for us, which is gloriously true, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit this is it in a nutshell God calls us as obedient children to walk faithfully in the commands that he has given us and yet we find time and time again that we are broken that we are twisted that we still have indwelling sin that slows us, that drags us, that trips us up. We never find ourselves reaching the point where we finally have figured out a way to be done with sin and to walk perfectly in obedience. We will never get there until we are finally face-to-face -face in the presence of Christ. But because God loves His children, He gave His Son to do all of the obedience that He requires of us that we could not do so that satisfying that obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ would count for us. 
you and I are accepted in the presence of God not because of how well we obeyed, but because of how perfectly Jesus obeyed. He counts for us. And then, and then, that is, a, that is a requirement of the law being fulfilled for us. But Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, which means that it's not merely a matter of record-keeping that counts to my advantage because Jesus has perfectly obeyed and his obedience now counts for me. But that as an added measure of infinite grace and mercy, he gives to each one of us in ourselves his Holy Spirit that gives us a new heart that is inclined to obey in ways that we never had before. So that even when we disobey, that grief or that sorrow that we encounter, even that is a sign of God's goodness to us. Because that grief and that sorrow, that conviction that the Spirit gives us is a reminder, this is not who you are. This is not your life. This is not the way that it works. And God, by His Spirit, graciously draws his children back, sets them back on the right path, and gives them renewed, refined desires to walk in obedience, to please their Father with joy and with delight. That kind of heart attitude towards obedience is not anything that you can manufacture on your own. That is a gift that God gives to you. And that is a gift that will grow as you allow the Spirit to work in you and through you to will and to do God's good pleasure. So God is good to give us His Word. Not just with statements of what He has done or what is, but even when He gives us statements of commands, what we must do. Those are good, loving gracious words that God gives to his children to give us direction in this new life. Our obedience to those commands opens up to us a full experience of all of the rights and privileges that we enjoy as children. And even on our worst days, though, the grace of God is seen most clearly in the work of Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit because the Son kept every command for us. And the Spirit then gives us new life to walk as Jesus walked so that day by day we are becoming more and more like Him. Let's pray. Father, who are we that you would show us this kind of kindness? That you would deliver us from the sin and the depravity that we find ourselves in and yet not leave us to ourselves, but continue to give us yourself through your word. We ask that you would give us hearts that long and that hunger for the scriptures because in them we find pathways of life. We see what it means and what it looks like to live life to the fullest with joy and with peace as your children. Separate us, Lord, from this world. May our trust and our obedience to you be a light to a lost and dying world. Do it, Father, by your spirit, and do it for the sake and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond to... God's word through song. When we walk 
close with Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verses 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless.